0: Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about white fragility, culture wars, and three shifts that leaders are making right now. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Happy Friday. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and I am wearing a tank top. What are you doing, Brian?
1: <laughs> I am suffering from allergies at the moment. <laughs> so
0: so what do our listeners have to look forward to for the next two hours?
1: me sniffling into the microphone cuz i tend to do that i it's so funny man i don't normally suffer from allergies and my entire family i don't know what it is but we are it's a tough day at the brown house we're all just dying from allergies right now
0: <laughs> well we'll be saying a crazy. prayer Throughout the whole show, we prompted by every sniffle to, uh, to light a candle for you. Uh, It'll quick, be often. I can, I can warn you. Quick. Quick. Before we get rolling here on Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, we got a lot of conversation happening there per usual. You can also shoot us a private message if you like. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And wherever it is you get podcasts, if you wouldn't mind, subscribe, rate, and review That helps us out a whole bunch. You can do that on the podcast or the Facebook page, by the way. And uh, we're really grateful for all of you who have done that. I want to talk a little bit about racism in this first segment. But briefly, a headline that I actually didn't notice till this morning. I didn't realize till this morning. Seven officers in Rochester, New York, suspended in death of Daniel Prude. Have you followed the story at all? I did. Just this
1: morning. I saw it on the Today Show as as well as uh, there was a story out of D.C., I believe, as well today.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then something else out of Portland. There's a there's a lot, a lot going on. And I didn't necessarily want this first segment to be like a news briefing. But would you just give us a quick flyover about the Rochester story in particular?
1: Yeah. A man by the name of Daniel Prude. He was uh, his brother called uh, and said his brother was having a mental illness kind of breakdown. And he was in the streets and the police officers arrested him. Uh, or subdued him and then they put a mask a hood over him because he had said I'm COVID-19 positive this is way back in March and uh, then he started saying some other things and being incoherent and to restrain him they put their uh, knee I believe on the back of his neck and he ended up uh, dying he was non-responsive after two minutes and so it's a sad sad story man it's a sad story so lots of uh Lots of protests going on now up in Rochester, but also in New York City and Times Square and some other places.
0: Yeah, and, and fair warning, the, the body cam video is Art. is really tough to watch. There's a whole lot of other things, a lot of other nuanced details to the story, but like you said, just at the end of the day, tragic. And Sad. some yeah. of the reports from the family members, some of the sound clips that I've heard from them are like chilling. I don't know, man. It is it is so frustrating. We actually were going to talk about this yesterday but ran out of time. It's not a new article necessarily. It was written August 8th out of Christianity Today, White Fragility, Sin, Redemption, and the Gospel. And the subheading is, An Insufficient Doctrine of Sin and Redemption Cannot Hope to Resolve Systemic Injustice. Do you want to get
1: us into this a little bit? Yeah, and this is interesting, because this is on Ed Stetzer, friend of the show, Ed Stetzer's blog at Christianity Today. And man, when he put these up, Twitter went a bit crazy at him uh, Mm -hmm. in both ways. So uh, he he was uh, very... Uh, giving defenses as to why this was important. So he said, though published in 2018, Robert D'Angelo's number one New York Times bestseller, White Fragility, has returned to the top of the bestseller list in the wake of the recent racial tensions and protests in America. In her book, uh, D'Angelo unpacks the phenomenon of, quote, white fragility, the inability or unwillingness of white people to talk about race and argues that it is, quote, not, is not weakness per se, but a powerful means of white racial control. The book's provocative thesis has prompted its share of critical reviews. The book has been critiqued for its circular logic, its lack of empirical grounding, its problematic epistemological assumptions, its dehumanizing condescension, and its opportunistic nod to the trillion-dollar wellness and self-help industry. What was surprising? Uh, what has surprisingly been lacking from the growing cottage industry of white fragility reviews is a theological critique of this flawed but culturally important work. While it may seem unfair to subject a book by a diversity consultant to a theological critique, there are two reasons the author writes a review of this nature is overdue. First, this book has not only graced the New York Times bestseller list; it has also appeared on numerous recommended lists, uh, recommended reading lists posted by evangelical pastors and leaders. While Christians should read widely to engage culture, they should also think critically and theologically about what they read. Second, its topic racism and white people's reluctance to reckon with it raises unavoidable theological questions. We simply can't talk about racism without talking about sin and evil concepts completely absent from D'Angelo's book. And we can't talk about white fragility without talking about repentance and redemption also conspicuously absent in short, White fragility struggles to reckon with racism or even white fragility because D'Angelo has a deficient doctrine of sin and an incomplete doctrine of redemption. So that's the introduction to this uh, It comes out swinging right there. And it's interesting that the author is taking theological framework, saying we have to look at this theologically, even though that clearly wasn't the author's point. Uh, but saying that, especially as Christ followers uh, with an issue this deep and this important, it's got to begin with a theological foundation.
0: Yeah, and I, I wonder if you agree that like every book needs to be run through a theological filter or rubric in order for it to be justifiable, or or do you do you not have the same problems with the
1: book? I'd, I'd love to know what you think so far, even just at this, this premise. So the only place I would agree, I don't think all books need to be read that way. The one point that he made, the author makes here, that I would agree uh, kind of needing to take it from a theological bent is the in his words, the amount of sharing that's been going on, the amount of pastors that at least he's seen. uh, I can't say this for myself, but at least that this author has seen the number of pastors and churches saying this is a book you should read, I think then raises the bar a little bit of, hey, then if we're going to ask churches and our pastors are going to ask their people to read it, maybe doing some theological work around it becomes more important. So I think that does raise the bar a little bit, but I certainly don't believe every book needs to be read like, oh, hold on, let's, let's rip this book apart theologically i don't think all books need to be done that way
0: let me just read a little more from the article one of the angelo's main goals in white fragility is to argue that racism is not merely discrete bigoted acts committed by racist individuals but rather a pervasive and complex interconnected system of racial injustice and oppression into which we are all born and socialized the result is that racist assumptions and ways of thinking are impossible not to absorb regardless of your upbringing or self-conception as a non-racist while some may quibble with D'Angelo's overstatements and oversimplifications, I think she is largely right about the systemic nature of racism. It's the water we swim in. The problem is that D'Angelo doesn't go far enough or deep enough. She is unwilling or perhaps unable to name racism for what it really is, sin. Stuck in what Charles Taylor calls the imminent, uh, the imminent frame of the secular, D'Angelo's attempt to account for racism without reference to cosmic evil ultimately fall to give racial injustice its due. For D'Angelo... Racism is manifested in, quote, problematic racial assumptions, which can lead to, quote, offensive behavior. These problematic assumptions, according to D'Angelo, are rooted in ignorance and socialization into a racialized society. While this argument is not wrong per se, it is a scandalously shallow account of racism, and it is unable to answer the most basic question that her argument raises. How is it? that we ended up with a racialized racist society in the first place. And I wish we had six more segments because it's a much longer <laughs> argument that sort yeah. of makes that case, at least from this perspective, uh, as to why speaking of a theological sin nature at its core, at its ontology, is actually really important to the discussion.
1: Absolutely. And near the end of the article, he says, In the gospel we discover the two truths that transformed John Newton, the slave trader turned abolitionist, When he said, I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great savior, he says, we simply can't reckon with racism in our souls or in our systems unless we embrace a robust doctrine of sin and understand that our struggle with racism is not against flesh and blood. Uh, Ephesians chapter six, verse two, for if we have the wrong diagnosis, we will have the wrong cure. So I think it's a very interesting. uh, What I do think this highlights, too, is some people uh, even with a topic like racism, they immediately go to their initial thoughts. And I'd consider reading the book. If you're out there and you're like, this book sounds terrible, go read it, see what you think and uh, give it a give it a whirl. And I do think this is a helpful diagnosis of it as well from the Christ follower perspective.
0: Uh, well, it is, I have, I've heard a number of evangelicals actually pick it apart from, for different reasons too. So I, I can't in good conscience say read it or not read it because I've not read it, but... Um, I have not read it either. Okay, so. okay. Yeah. I think I think that's probably an important caveat, uh, just before nope. we make recommendations. Coming up next this morning out of the gospel coalition, Cap Stewart says if you're fighting the culture war, you're losing. That's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the common good. Was that a little little drum roll on the desk, Brian? What was that? Nope. That was my phone that fell.
1: <laughs> you drop your phone more than any adult person I know. It's This is going to sound so dumb. It's going to sound so ch- like you're going to make you're just a moron, but I I prop it up so I can see it cuz that's where my timer is and every now and then it'll just fall over.
0: <laughs> let let and the record show I've recommended no fewer than four times a week just set the timer
1: on your computer. You're on your computer. Just use your I'm a a creature of habit here. Creature of habit. The phone works well for me.
0: Does it, though? (laughs)
1: Except when it falls over.
0: (laughs) I I say current evidence notwithstanding. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk about culture today. So I thought it would be appropriate to let you know some of the amazing holidays that are today. It's National Newspaper Carrier Day, of which I was one from the ripe young age of eight up until. No way. Probably. Yeah, eight or nine. And I had it probably for 10 years, maybe 10 plus. Uh, really? National College Colors Day. National Lazy Moms Day. Didn't know that. National Jeez. Food Bank Day. Wow. A lot of, okay. a lot of days today. I'll, I'll save some for later, but uh, that's sort of our tease into talking about culture. Cap Stewart over at the Gospel Coalition. If you're fighting the culture war, you're losing. He says, a new Christian consortium dedicated to preserving religious liberty is promoting its mission with militaristic imagery and language. The group's website uses terms like battle and fighters and war. It's clear the founders of this organization see themselves as being on the front lines of the conflict for the soul of our nation. They're proud participants in the ongoing culture war. To some, this approach may seem legitimate. After all, in the struggle for dominance between polarized groups, only one side can emerge victorious, and it isn't the side that refuses to fight. The question we must ask is this, and I'll pose this question to you as well, Brian. Mm -hmm. Is a warlike posture the proper response to an increasingly anti-Christian society? Does such an approach represent the, quote, wisdom that comes down from above or the wisdom that is, quote, earthly and spiritual and demonic? James three thirteen through 18. I would love to know just how you first blush answer that question.
1: But well, the first thought I had was, well, we should ask ourselves, did Jesus take a warlike posture towards a society that was against him? Fair enough. And uh, he, he clearly did not. And so I, I, I'm looking forward to the rest of this article because I don't think a warlike posture is the best response. Uh, mm-hmm. We're fighting culture and we're going to win. That doesn't feel uh, biblical to me.
0: Well, let me just get into the rest of it. It's not that long. and I think it raises some interesting points. He says, the problem with the culture war approach is not that it rightly discerns opposition from the world. The problem is in the chosen mode of response. That is, I'm going to read that one more time. That's really good. The problem with the culture war approach is not that it rightly discerns opposition from the world. The problem is in the chosen mode of response. By embracing the culture war paradigm, many Christians adopt likely inadvertently And all's fair in love and war perspective. After all, in a war, you don't turn the other cheek. You strike back as hard or harder than your opponent. That's how wars are won. And so we employ battle tactics we normally would not find defensible. We express outrage over every new infraction we see in the news or on social media, forgetting that we are neither to give in so easily to anger nor to imitate the evils of outrage culture, cancer culture or victim culture. Secondly, we fight and quarrel with our opponents, forgetting that such skirmishes stem from selfish motives and that the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone. Third, we mock those in opposition to us using the popular rhetoric of sarcastic memes, name-calling, and condescending language, forgetting that we are to communicate with gentleness and respect and to walk in wisdom toward outsiders by letting our speech always be gracious. I know that you can't tell this just by listening to my voice, but there was about a dozen or so... Bible references in just that list of three there. He says, in short, culture warriors wrestle with others in an antithetical way to scripture teaching, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, or as Jesus himself put it, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, but my kingdom is not from this world. Ours is a spiritual war. We take our marching orders from our own former enemy, He who reconciled us to Himself by the shedding of blood, not ours uh, in just in just retribution, but His in gracious propitiation. So I'll stop there. General thoughts from Pastor Brian Fromm.
1: Yeah, again, it's kind of what we touched on earlier. He frames it around Scripture. If 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 we are followers of Jesus, and then the the lens with which we. Uh, interact with the world with our culture, then becomes modeled by how did Jesus model, how did Jesus do it to his culture? But also, what are the teachings of Scripture? Uh, and and nowhere in Scripture, I think he does a good job here because it, Scripture does not hold up this view of we are to war and win like that's our calling. Um, but, but the language is much different. And and so I think that becomes the important point in this, because there might be people out there being like, but there is a battle going out there. We've got to fight hard. And I would just say winning isn't always the, what, what we're shooting for here. Right. And, and again, uh, Jesus is the one that we look to. And so a lot of the ways we engage culture is just not the way Jesus engaged with the people around him.
0: Well, what do you, what do you mean by winning isn't what we're shooting for?
1: Um. Sometimes you can win small battles that, but lose the war. Is that how the old saying goes? Like if if we're gonna fight for our rights with every little thing, or not even our rights, but just our our wishes, if we're gonna fight and fight and fight. It's what we listened to it with Andy Stanley last week. Uh, if the goal is to fight and then we become adversarial with those that we're trying to love and reach in our communities, that we're trying to make connections. It becomes the Christians against the non-Christians. and you might win some of those uh, battles along the way, whether it be in the courts or whatever else it might be. But what is ultimately uh, what is ultimately the result going to be? What is what is the result going to be for the reputation of the church? Uh, and ultimately, the reput- reputation of Jesus to those who uh, who we want to know, uh, whom we want to know the good news of the gospel, that we want them to meet Jesus. But if all they see is us always fighting them, uh, what what's going to be the result of that? So that's why I would say winning every little battle is not always uh, ultimately winning, I would say. Okay.
0: Yeah, let me let me read a little more what he says. He says, "Some might well ask, but shouldn't we oppose the evils being spread in our society?" The answer is a resounding yes. Engaging with and even confronting our culture is a legitimate form of being salt and light in the world. Again, the deciding factor is the nature of our engagement. Are we seeking to destroy or to rescue our opponents? When we correct or oppose or reprove, is it with the goal of winning the conversation or winning a neighbor? Do we confront others in the right spirit? One of the ways that um, I've often talked about it is uh, like harsh words may be necessary, but are you coming with a hatchet or a scalpel? They both mm-hmm. cut, but only one cuts with the intent to heal, right? Like sometimes tough words are needed. And he he, he has this heading here, enemies or neighbors, which I think is the question of the age throughout human history. Christians have displayed valiant love in the face of overwhelming opposition. That's why the apostle Paul was able to address a crowd who had just tried to kill him as brothers and sisters. That's why uh, Mariah Goretti was able to speak these words shortly before dying from the wounds of her attacker, saying, quote, I want him with me in heaven forever. That's why the newly converted Ed Johnson was able to say before being lynched by a mob, God bless you all. That is how Christians are called to battle, not to fight fire with fire, at least not how that phrase is normally understood. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing so, you will heap coals on his head. As counterintuitive as it may seem, the fire of human hatred can only be overcome by the spark of divine love. The unassuming meekness of this love may appear weak and infectual, but it generates a supernatural yield more powerful than any earthly weapon can yield.
1: So a whole lot more here, but last 30 seconds or so left. What what do you think of that? I I think it's powerful. I think it's powerful. Uh, I'm reminded that Jesus... If you had to label anybody his enemies while he was on the earth, it was the religious people who were judging and fighting and trying to win all the time. And uh, I I just love the way the article ends here. It says, by by divine decree, everyone is our neighbor, no exceptions. And we win our neighbors through the same love that won us. So Mm -hmm. I I think this is challenging, man, because we live in a culture where we want to argue. We want to fight. We want to win. And what's the call of Christ in this culture? Uh, How is his church meant to live? I think this is really challenging.
0: It's a good word, man. Coming up next from Kerry Newhoff, three mindset shifts great leaders are making during the pandemic. That's coming up next year on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Oh, hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, and Brian Fromm is with me also. No, it's getting worse. I'm steering, I'm trending in the wrong direction here, Brian. I gotta I'm gonna, while you're talking, I'm gonna come up with a different way to introduce the show. And it will be Probably just as awkward, let's be honest. Uh, I'm to get into this article from Kerry Newhoff. He's talking about mindset shifts that great leaders are making right now. But before we get into that, why don't you tell us about something going on at the station?
1: Yeah, you know, seeing Israel is a lifetime memory. But taking a Bible prophecy tour of Israel could change your life. So right now, you could enter for a chance to win a Bible prophecy tour to Israel next March with Dr. Robert Jeffers. Enter today at eleven sixty hope dot com keyword israel that is eleven sixty hope dot com keyword israel okay confession every time you say seeing Israel,
0: I always think you're saying seeing is real and it always oh, that's funny it, every time I'm like what is he saying is this are we promoting eye- Israel are we promoting <laughs> eyeglasses now what is happening <laughs> seeing israel like I didn't realize there was a lot of controversy around the, the act of seeing. And you were just making That's sure people wild. know that, hey, seeing is real. People really see. Hey, you might not believe it, people, but I'm telling you, seeing mm-hmm. is real. It's, <laughs> it's, it's true. All right. So, <laughs> Kerry Newhoff, we can't yet call him friend of the show. Have we had him on yet? No, we have not. All right. We got to make that happen. Either way, uh, the guy writes and blogs and podcasts more than – Almost anyone in his field. It's pretty it's pretty bonkers. But he's he's got a a pretty great blog that. uh, And again, we say this with a lot of stuff. We don't always agree with everything he says. But I think he's got some he's a good writer. He's got some provocative thoughts. And he he's a really, I think, thoughtful leader. And he wrote this article, three mindset shifts great leaders are making during the pandemic. You want to get us into it? Yep. says today's
1: leadership environment is demanding something different from you, how you led historically doesn't have the same impact. It's so true. I was just having this conversation over lunch with someone. Uh, The pace of change around you is dizzying and the expectation to keep up with with it all is debilitating. Our entire way of life has been upended by a global pandemic, economic uncertainty and escalated racial tension. The emotional resilience of our society is being tested at every level. To lead well in this season is going to require something different from you. And you know when you're reading a blog and it tells you click to tweet that line. That's that's their money line there. To lead well in this season is going to require something different from you. Results from an extensive multi-phase research project revealed startling statistics and how radically the values of consumers, though, have shifted as a result of COVID-19. Pre-pandemic, consumers responded to marketing that promised success, influence, and status. Within days of the impact of the pandemic, consumer values completely shifted to a desire for support, safety, and trust. Support, safety, and trust became our guiding concern seemingly overnight. What this report reveals are the values that are the most influencing people in this season. For leaders to be most effective, they must know what people value, and they must adjust their leadership to meet people where those values intersect real life. People don't care about your influence if you're not using that influence to support them. They don't They don't need you to be the hero. They need to know if you'll help. They're not concerned about your success. They need to feel confident that they can trust you. Let me pause there. What do you think about this shift uh, that this blog is describing here?
0: I, I think it's really important. And just to say it out loud, I feel like we missed this. This is from Jenny Catrone, uh, not Carrie Newhoff, just so that we're we're clear that she's the founder and CEO of the foresight group, we actually had her out to do some teaching with oh, really? community a few years ago. She's wonderful. Yeah. Incredibly insightful finger on the pulse. to think of like shifts in culture and leadership. I think, I think she's great. I think it's interesting too, to think about, I mean, we've talked a little bit about this over the last six months, just when you think beyond simply the adrenaline of like course correcting as a church leader, like, okay, how are we going to quote unquote, sort of pull off the Sunday thing? Uh, that was probably a lot of people for a while, but it's been really interesting to see people take a deeper dive into like, okay, people are engaging with or consuming or interacting with information and community in very, very different ways. And, and again, I, I think this is probably not even universal uh, across the globe. I think a lot of this probably depends on uh, upbringing or region, or I still think there's probably some pockets of outliers, but... Again, a blog like this, that I think is talking about the, the, the shifts that a lot of at least impacting leaders are making right now is, uh, is really important. She says, perspective number one, you quit c- caring about what's in it for you. And then she says, what, why do you want to lead? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Let's be honest. Sometimes leading others feels more like herding cats than guiding sheep. Leadership is challenging in the best of circumstances. It's excruciating in crisis. Now more than ever, you need to be clear about why you're leading. The role of the leader is to serve others. I would add a big amen. To identify the gifts of your team and to deploy them in pursuit of a shared goal. Many of us aspire to leadership for the perceived sense of power or influence it will give us. This likely is not a conscious aspiration, but positions of leadership come with greater authority and responsibility. The sexy side of authority and responsibility is power and influence. If we're not conscious of this, we're likely to underestimate the true cost of leadership. Leadership is not about you or for you. It's not for your success. Mm-hmm. Your praise or your future. Leadership is about others. If we don't have this perspective right, we'll never fully embrace the sacred and sacrificial calling of leadership. Your why is the foundation for everything you do as a leader. When our why is clear, it gives us the courage to keep leading through the challenging days. Have you ever asked yourself lately why you're leading? It's critical you take a pause and do that now. Do the heart check. If your answer isn't to serve, guide, protect, and lead others, It's time to reevaluate your motive and get clear about the purpose
1: of leadership. That's a good one, man. That's good perspective, too. It's not about you, but it starts with you. It always starts with the leader. If we want to impact the effectiveness of our organization, it starts with us. What do we need to do differently to lead better and influence change? This is the self-leadership that you've heard her reference so often. You must lead yourself well to lead others better. When you've done the self-investigation to revisit and redetermine your why, then you can do the further work of asking yourself how, Mm -hmm. how do you want to lead and how you lead others begins with how you lead yourself. You can't take those you lead somewhere that you're not willing to go yourself. It says this humble and sacrificial posture lays a foundation upon which you can build a culture of collaboration, innovation, and health. Yeah, that's good, man. Perspective three, your greatest
0: work is through others. This is a lot like Dave Ferguson's Hero Maker, right? While yep. our individualistic society shouts at us to get ahead and to compete, to be self-protective and territorial, what's actually true is that your greatest fulfillment as a leader will will come from seeing others thrive. As the old adage goes, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I'll be honest that at times I'm tempted to simply want to go fast. There have been days when I'm convinced, when I've convinced myself that, uh, that my best course of action is to go ahead and do things on my own, knowing they will be done well and done completely. My sense is that you probably have probably had those days too. But giving into that temptation steals from those we lead the opportunity to grow, to discover leadership gifts and problem-solving capabilities in themselves that might otherwise lay dormant. Worse yet, it allows pride to get in the way of the type of collaboration that sharpens an idea and, and improves a process in such a way that uh, produces a remarkable outcome, dare I say, a better outcome. What you do to call out and nurture the skills and talents of your team to provide clarity and guardrails for them to pursue goals and to create the safety of a risk-friendly growth mindset environment will ultimately lead to the measure of your impact. Pour into others, allow space for them to make mistakes and learn from them, invite them to opportunities. They don't think they are ready for that. That is a really good
1: word. Yeah. I think this whole thing is good because, uh, covid nineteen's changed a lot of things, but I think just organizationally, pastors, businesses, whatever else it might be. I think she really raises some great um challenges and perspective shifts that need to happen if we're going to continue to lead well. It's just not the same as it's always been, so I find this pretty pretty good.
0: Yeah, and I think these truths would apply during any time in history. I don't think this yeah. like simply like shifts for a lot of leaders, these aren't actually shifts at all. This is what they've been doing. And I think it's all the more important during crisis when I think, at least for you know, for me, sometimes the temptation in crisis is to hunker down to be even more individualistic. And I think these shifts or at least doubling down on maybe some of these postures in a crisis is really, really important. And I, I wanted to kind of stick with this theme because I'm I'm curious what you'll think of this next one. It's from Daryl Dash. It says, the false gospel of visionary success. That's coming up next year on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. Happy National Newspaper Carrier Day. It's also National Macadamia Nut Day. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, Brian. I'm not. Are you a big macadam- macadamia nut guy? Not really. I'm more cashews, peanuts. Yeah, not you a big macadamia guy. You would be. Are you a, <laughs> cas- a cashew butter guy? Have you, have you ventured into the, the various other
1: nut butters? I have not. No, I have never. Never? I've had almond butter. I've had almond butter, but oh. that's that's probably about it.
0: Cashew butter, if you're if you're uh, struggling with cholesterol at all, blood pressure. I'm just. I actually don't know if that's true. I do think it's a lot healthier, and it's only like eighty seven dollars a jar. So I would uh, <laughs> highly recommend making that move. We're talking a little leadership. We were talking about uh, three shifts that leaders are making in the last segment. That was from Jenny Controne on Kerry Newhoff's blog. This one's from Daryl Dash. And the headline simply reads, The False Gospel of Visionary Success.
1: What is going on here? Yeah, Daryl Dash writes, The whole problem is that churches don't operate like businessmen, the businessman explained. (laughs) If they did, we'd all be better off. I can't remember what prompted this discussion, but I heard it a few times from this man and others. Pastors should look to business leaders for inspiration. Churches should adopt business practices. Churches should also teach their people how to do this so that they know how to really live well in the world. It's widespread. It's the false gospel of visionary success. Mm-hmm. I hear it often, even from pulpits, and it's robbing us of a better message uh, that we need to believe. All right, going to pause there. What do you? Th- what are your thoughts just about that premise to start?
0: Uh, <laughs> uh, personally... Oh boy, I'm gonna get myself into some trouble here. I hear. i I've learned a lot in church work from business leaders. I don't I don't I don't want to knock that at all. I do tend though, if if I'm talking outside of the sphere of like academia, theology, scholarship, I tend to draw more information, more inspiration more often from like psychologists and doctors than I do like business leaders personally. Um, that's kind of my bent. I don't know, but you've planted a church. I haven't like, where, where do you land on that?
1: You know, I I don't think it's always, I think oftentimes you'll read these articles and it's very either or, right? Like you're either listen to the business leaders or, you know, you lead like a shepherd, <laughs> like it's one or sure, the other. Sure. And I think there's something to be learned from both. Right. But I do think uh, that at least in the last, I don't know, decade or two it, for various reasons, church work swung pretty pretty heavy and probably too far towards let's model business let's call our a board of directors let's do it this way that that it's probably that pendulum needed to swing back a little bit
0: Hmm. all right i'll dig that are you a trevin wax wax fan
1: uh i i follow him on twitter yeah
0: okay yeah he's a good fall so i've not read this in this is our time trevin wax asks what if we are living according to the myths of our culture without even questioning them he helps expose some of the lies that we're tempted to believe and shows how the gospel tells a better story. I feel like that's kind of been our theme, actually. We were talking even with um with uh, Dr. Koizas earlier and he's talking about political narratives and now we're sort of right. talking about cultural narratives. I really like the idea of the story the gospel tells. And he says one of the lies we're tempted to believe comes from business. Set a vision for your life and your church. And if you're a pastor, help your people do the same, become a great leader and overcome any obstacle that stand in the way of your success. Learn from whoever you can in order to attain your goals, especially those who've achieved business success. There's some truth in these statements, much like you were saying, Brian. Some ministries need a clearer vision. Some organizations need better leadership. And we can learn from anyone. But the problems with this approach are many. These lies are more aligned with a North American vision of the good life than Scripture. Ooh, boy, here we go. They offer a vision of the good life that the writer of Ecclesiastes found empty. They assume we have more control than we actually do. They elevate one set of skills, visionary leadership, over skills and gifts uh, and elevate these skills over character. They put relentless pressure on pastors and individuals to succeed. They label some people who've succeeded in God's eyes as failures. They've given primary authority to business sources, pushing scripture to the periphery. They pressure us to use scriptural leaders, even Jesus, as illustrations of best and worst practices rather than characters in God's ongoing story of redemption. The false gospel of visionary success promises much but leaves us feeling pressured and empty if they don't succeed or even if they do.
1: What do you think of that? I, I think it's, it's it's really well said because here's what struck me as I was reading this was uh, in a business, uh, success is so I, I'm assuming is is generally um, very clear cut. Did we make budget or not? Did we make money? Did we Are we growing? What is success when it comes to a pastor or to a church? And my guess is that if you're out there listening, you've got an answer to that. But I would push you and say, where are you getting that answer from? Like, mm-hmm. what is it about a bigger church or making budget or whatever else it might be that causes it to be a success? So that's part of the issue here. And, uh, and also just leadership biblically looks different than the leadership of, uh, like he said, the North American vision of leadership or of the business world. It just looks different.
0: Well, and I don't want to stop there because this next section here is a better message. He says, scripture presents a better message. We are known not for what we do, but what we are known. Well, let me say that again. We are known not for what we do, but we are known because we were made in the image of God. Those who are in Christ Jesus are loved on our worst day as well as our best day. We've been given work to do and we should do it well, but we do it all for the glory of God. Our work will be forgotten by everyone else sooner than we think, but it matters because it matters to God. Life is unpredictable and hard. We will suffer more than we expect in this life. Many of us will labor and never be successful in the world's eyes, but God's evaluation is the only one that matters. God uses even the difficult things in our lives for our good and his glory. The church is not a business. It's Jesus' bride, precious and loved by him. Jesus is the ultimate leader of the church, and his way is the way of servanthood and the cross. And he's given us everything we need to know in his word for how to live wisely in this world. We can learn from anyone and anything, but we can never find better wisdom than in Scripture. Live and serve well, but look to Scripture for your models, not to the latest leadership book on Amazon. And when everything is said and done, what matters is that we fear God and keep his commandments, not that we're well known or succeeded in becoming visionary leaders. The call on our lives is not to make much of ourselves, but to lose our lives so that we can find them. And then he kind of gives this challenge here to preach a better gospel. He says, this false gospel is an invasive species that seems to spread easily. So let's be on guard. Pastors, please never preach the false gospel of visionary leadership. Let's make it clear that scripture is our authority. Let's lead as shepherds, not CEOs. Read business books if you want, but be mastered by the word. Let's stop attending church conferences where Bibles are rarely opened and this false gospel is preached. And let's help others spot this false gospel and preach a better one. If your church has heard this message, then help them hear a better one. Let's stop believing this message in our personal lives and commit instead to believing the gospel of grace and centering our lives around this message. What do you think?
1: it's, it's strong, man. I, I, I found myself shaking my head. Yes. As it was going because mm. uh I there you do uh the two models really do kind of uh, the, the lines get blurred right in churches and what is success and what is a leader supposed to be. And then you open up your Bible and you read what a shepherd looks like and what Jesus modeled and you wrestle with it. And, And so, again, I think there are things to learn from the business world. And like you said, from the medical world or whatever, but understanding that churches and pastoral leadership is still going to be different. They're not just going to be one to one. Well, businessman does this. So I do this. I think it's super important. So I think this is this is a well-written deal.
0: Well, here's how he ends it. He says, life's too short to believe or preach this false gospel. We have much better news and we've been charged with guarding it and passing it on let's not settle for substitutes. That one uh, might surprise us and be more controversial on facebook than we realize, but as always, it's posted there for your interaction and your feedback. We'd love to know what you think, what maybe you would push back on, counterarguments, all that is fair game over on the facebook page the common good radio show. First hour is in the books. Coming up next, why not? We're going to talk a little porn hub. That's coming up next here on the common good on AM 1160. Hope you're like. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about Pornhub. We're going to talk about conservative theology versus liberal theology, and we're joined by songwriter Jeremiah Higgins. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good, to Part due, as we <laughs> don't ever say nope. on this day ever. Uh, <laughs> do you ever see Hot Shots Part Do?
1: Oh, yeah. That was right oh, in my sorry. wheelhouse when that came out. I was like high school. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> what wheelhouse is that what oh, other movies would remember in that category remember that time uh there was this run of like hot shots and then naked gun and they each had multiple uh you know naked gun one naked gun two and a half and all of those i I couldn't get enough of those <laughs> that, that explains. That was high school lot. me right there. That's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> and yes, I've never seen Lord of the Rings.
0: <laughs> but Hotshots Part due on constant repeat. My yes. goodness. <laughs> uh, a couple of quick things here: Facebook, the Common Good Radio Show, eleven sixty hope.com slash the Common Good, and wherever it is you get podcasts. I want to talk. Well, this might be a controversial segment. It's a. It's going to be a two parter. So I got two links here for this segment. The first is from Christian Post, and the headline simply reads, 2 million back petition to shut down Pornhub over sex trafficking and child abuse videos. You want to
1: give us just like a real brief flyover on this one, Brian? Yeah, there's a petition, as you said, calling for the dismantling of Pornhub uh, that has surpassed 2 million signatures. It was launched in February by the director of... Um. Uh, of abolition for the Sacramento-based nonprofit Exodus Cry, and it's received signatures from 192 countries. The petition and corresponding website allege with notable evidence that the site has been, Pornhub has been enabling and profiting off of crimes like rape, abduction, sexual assault, and sex trafficking. It has a, the backing of uh, Senator Ben Sass and uh, some lawmakers in Canada, so there seems to be this groundswell. Now, understand uh, that porn hub uh, draws about 42 billion views per year. And so this is a very big deal, obviously. But uh, it says the site is set up for exploitation as, and is infested with videos of the real rape, trafficking, abuse, and exploitation of women and children. So uh, no small number of signatures here, right? Two million trying to say, hey, uh, this is a public health issue, a safety issue, a criminal issue. Uh, we've got to take down this website.
0: Do do does that number surprise you at all? Either of those numbers, both viewership or signatures.
1: Uh, the signatures does not surprise me. I think uh, there are a lot of people that, especially as they hear that uh, what what some of the results are and what's going on at Pornhub. Uh, just that number. Anytime the number has a B with billion, it surprises me. Like I know how the internet works, so it shouldn't surprise me. But anytime reading a number that big, it's it's both sad and it does surprise me. The numbers are that big.
0: Well, I wanted to, uh, to use that as sort of a setup to the rest of this segment. It's from Grit and Virtue, and it's from Nicole Lim. The headline reads, three powerful ways to advocate with survivors of sexual violence. She writes, 10 years ago, I found myself traveling between informed settlements and rural villages in the majority world. I was working as an international documentary filmmaker capturing stories of hope amidst places of oppression. I was incredibly idealistic, hoping that my career in filmmaking would somehow cast light on the untold stories of the world. But as I listened, I discovered that it was more than I could hold. I documented stories of women who escaped their traffickers in Mumbai. I met teenage girls trapped in a generational cycle of forced prostitution in Kolkata. I heard stories of high school students who were raped in exchange for school fees in Kenya. I met girls married off as young as nine years old to elderly men in the Maasai tribe, I learned that 89% of sexual assault cases involved children in Zambia. I learned that one in three women are survivors of sexual or domestic violence worldwide. There I was confronted with the reality of sexual violence and I saw a common thread. Girls who lacked access to education were more vulnerable to sexual violence. In Kenya and Zambia, primary education is free while secondary education is not for families living on less than a dollar a day. Paying tuition fees for multiple children is nearly impossible. After finishing primary school, many girls are expected to marry early, get a job as a house girl, or live as a subservient domestic life with opportunity uh, without the opportunity for a career. Though access to education is supposed to be a child's right, education is often reserved for the elite. As I listen to the stories of these girls... They told me that their dream was to go to university, not just so that they could pursue their own careers, but so that their entire community could have options outside of poverty. They dreamed that girls would no longer suffer from the same abuse they had. They dreamed of equal access to safe and quality education. They dreamed of liberation that went beyond their own experience. They dreamed of change within the justice systems that had failed them. They dreamed of a violence-free world where the bodies of girls would be protected, valued, and uplifted. I was both enamored and challenged by their dreams, wondering what my role could be. Their stories called me into advocacy with them, and I started an organization called Freely in Hope. We equip survivors and advocates to lead in ending the cycle of sexual violence by funding education and leadership opportunities so that they can share their rewritten stories with the world. So I'll, I'll stop there, Brian. Uh, I, I heard you even kind of responding, reacting to some of what I was reading there. Um,
1: how, how does what I've read strike you? I mean, to hear those stats and those stories and those observations are just, you know, it's one of those things that that we all need to hear and you just don't want to. You don't want to believe that those things are happening uh, around the world and in parts of the United States, I'm sure. Uh, You just, you know, as a dad who has young, uh, you know, not even young daughters, teenage daughters and just about to be teenage daughters, you just – uh, it's just heartbreaking to read those things, and then to link back to the the thing we read uh, earlier is that uh, the pervasiveness of porn of of pornography and stuff just dehumanizes these women and these young girls, uh, and leads to these kinds of things. And so uh, people might wonder why does the church or why are people always talking about pornography? It's for issues like this when we start to dehumanize and start to glorify abuse and glorify. Um, you know, sexualize young girls or whatever else. It it just the trickle down effect here. You end up reading these kind of statistics. It's just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, let me just read the rest because I think it's it's really powerful. She says, too often survivors have been told to remain silent to per- to protect the per- uh, perpetrator. Their stories aren't believed, validated, or taken seriously. In addition to the the incident of violence, survivors experience much shame and trauma because of our culture that questions what really happened. This is an unfortunate reality for, for survivors who deserve justice. As survivors gain the courage to tell their stories, they regain their innate power. Rather than being silenced by the perpetrator, they reclaim their voice by telling their story according to their experience. As an advocate listening to their stories, resist the urge to ask questions or to tell them to, quote, pray about it. Revelation twelve eleven says, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Telling their story in a safe space is a critical process for their healing And then he goes on to say, rape culture is real. The words we say may be unintentional, but careless comments, lack of support and judgmental attitudes cause great harm. Many survivors are harmed emotionally and psychologically because of the myths, stigmas and stereotypes that are dominant in a a patriarchal culture. And then this is something that I've been grappling with uh, recently when they talk about, you are not a voice for the voiceless as advocates who desire justice. We sometimes try too hard to be a voice for the voiceless and forget they already have a voice. We're just not listening. Instead of speaking on behalf of survivors, our advocacy efforts must work in tandem with, not for survivors. By listening to their needs, their ideas, and their vision, we are invited to co-create solutions that can end sexual violence in our world. To achieve a a shared vision, we must work together. Survivors and advocates, men and women, community leaders and its members, we believe our united advocacy can transform the world. If you or someone you know is a survivor of sexual violence, listen without judgment, offer a loving presence without the pressure to do or say anything and encourage the survivor to get legal or mental health support. No, no of the local professional professional resources that this person can access, offer to pay for therapy when they're ready and be patient in their journey toward healing. As an advocate, it's important to access your own care and support systems to prevent burnout. We can only bring healing to the world as we ourselves have experienced healing. I just thought, Such a timely, important, important, and and again, this is over radio, you can't see this, but there's a lot of links to helpful resources in this article, which has been shared on our Facebook page, and I highly, highly, highly recommend you not only read it, uh, but then take, I think, the suggestions and course of actions that she outlines really, really seriously, because as we read at the beginning of the segment, like clearly, this is a massive, massive issue that I think breaks the heart of God and should break our hearts as well. So that's over on the Facebook page, and we would love for you to use that resource. Coming up next, a friend of mine, songwriter, worship pastor, and all-around great dude, Jeremiah Higgins, has a brand new song coming out tomorrow called Stop Stand. And uh, we're going to hear a bit more about his creation, his uh, heart for ministry, and uh, the creative process here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. So
2: you, drive down on the so
0: that you Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Maybe the guest that we've been trying to get on the show for the longest amount of time, and I'm thrilled It's fine today is the day it's finally happening. Jeremiah Higgins, welcome to the show, sir. Hello. It's good to be here.
2: <laughs> good Socially to, good
0: distant to and him, all. Man. That's right. That's right. So cards on the table. Uh, Jer and I are real-life friends, but he's also an incredible musician, and songwriter, and worship pastor and thinker. But, uh, Jeremiah, I wanted to give you a second to just introduce yourself to our audience however you want.
2: Yeah, well, my name is Jeremiah. I am 36 years old. I like long walks on the beach and <laughs> um, sunsets. I can verify, I can verify that. Uh, I love uh, pour over coffee. And my Venmo handle is Jeremiah slash Higgins. If you'd like to tip me, uh, that'd be great. During this <laughs> pandemic economy, I found myself out of work. Uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, I'm a, a worship leader and I've been a musician for my whole life. I grew up in a musical family. Um, and I just have a passion for, um, kind of kingdom creativity and mm-hmm. music and songwriting. Um, I kind of live that out in my own life and try to do that in ministry when I am gainfully employed. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
1: Jeremiah, we see that you're releasing a new song tomorrow uh, on all digital platforms uh, called "Stop Stand." And rather than asking like, "What's the song about?" or whatever, I'm curious: What is it like on the eve of a song releasing? Is it nerve wracking? Is it exciting? Is it all of those things? What are you feeling right now?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, I think there's a uh, there's nerves. Um, obviously, you want it to be received well. Um, I have no delusions of grandeur about, um, kind of like commercial success. I'm not really a, a quote unquote classic pop songwriter. Um, and th- that's kind of the genre that makes the most money. So mm-hmm. I release my music for, um, just to put a little beauty back into the world. Um, and so my hope with this song is that, um, it catches someone's ear and they're able to relate to it. Um, it's really, this is the first song I wrote in quarantine, I wrote it in, um, wrote it and recorded it. Oh, I wrote it in about ten minutes, which is pretty rare for most songwriters, and yeah. myself included. And um, I spent the last uh, couple months just producing it with a friend of mine named Gareth Spin, who's incredibly talented. Um, social distance, of course, so it's been a lot of emailing back and forth and Google Drive files and all that stuff.
0: Sort of like a modern-day postal service situation, right? (laughs) No no one's actually in the same room together, which has got to be strange. One of the things that you and I have talked a lot over the last, how long have you been friends? Decade or so, is uh, the role of creativity in the church. Brian and I are both pastors. That's a question that I'm often trying to grapple with. How, How does the church engage with creativity well? How does the church leverage or not leverage artists like i'd love to know some of your experience with regards to artists and artistry in like a local church context
2: yeah um well i think uh the first step is to create safe spaces um Mm -hmm. i think we in the church world probably hear that a lot for a lot of different type of people that we're trying to reach we want to create safe spaces we want to create spaces for people to live and do life and um that's great and i think um the overarching idea of creating safe spaces is really healthy. Um, But artists and creatives are a little bit different um, only because I believe that we are created to um, look at things that um, are a little bit messier and interact with things that are a little bit messier um, than people who don't necessarily identify as uh, an artist or creative is. And it's Mm. scary for a lot of people, Mm. Um, especially a lot of people and the archetypes that come along with church leadership. Um, they might be willing to push, creatives might be willing to push boundaries that most church leadership isn't historically comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think step one is creating safe spaces for artists to come and interact. Um, And I honestly believe that we, when we, when we uh, create those safe spaces for an artist or a creative to come in and work and express uh, what they're feeling and what they're experiencing, and how they're interacting with the gospel in their life, in and through their life, um, we as the church as a whole get to see a uh, fuller picture of what the gospel is. Um, and I think that uh, you've seen it throughout history um, when you see some of these beautiful art pieces that have been made. Um, and I think that we're poised as a society and as a quote unquote Christian subculture for artistic revolution um given the accessibility that we have now.
1: Hmm. I'm curious, just piggybacking off that, why do you think we're poised for that? And what does that even look like? Someone hears artistic revolution. What exactly do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, uh I mean I think uh I think we're poised because of the like I said, the accessibility. So I think yeah. um I can me or any other artist in the world can put something out and it has that opportunity to go viral in two seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so the internet has given us a, an incredible platform, um, to, uh, publish our works. Now with that is there's the dark side to that, which is there's a bajillion people publishing works. Um, right. so it's not the, the most exclusive platform, but it is a solid platform. Um, and I'm trying to think of what the follow up was that you were giving Brian, um, Can you ask your question again? I'm sorry. Yeah. What
1: does it look like when you say an artistic revolution? What what does that even look like?
2: Yeah. Well, okay. So I think, um, and I've experienced this in in the last decade of ministry, uh, in certain points of my ministry um, life as a staff member at churches, um, that we are are called to uh, interact with culture, be set apart from culture, but interact Mm -hmm. with culture and actually influence culture. And I think for the longest time, especially with music, modern day CCM music, um, we are continuing to react to culture. Hmm. We are continuing to take things that already work um, and mold them and put a Christian tag on them and say, Um. hey, this is for Christians. Um, And I think there's an opportunity and I think the church is coming to a place with especially with a lot of the conversations with missional movement, and now everyone's going online, and so the visibility of what churches are doing is huge. There's a mm-hmm. great opportunity for a local church to create safe space for creatives, allow them to create beautiful, beautiful artworks um, because the source in which is inspiring is the most beautiful thing in the world. I think we can all agree with that right um, and then uh, you know let let those works influence the world, allow them, release them into the world um, in order to ultimately point people back to Jesus. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. yeah, You're actually one of the, one of the people that I think does that best because oftentimes like, like we've discussed many times, worship pastors can focus solely on the local expression, mm-hmm. the local congregation, where for you, I think you're, I think you're a great leader and pastor of people, but you also, you would play out at clubs or, you know, you and I have played beer and hymns together. Like, why mm-hmm. do you think it's valuable to continue to, to give space and time to these things that others might think, well, that's not technically your job to, you know, to gig out or to collaborate with other musicians or to host a beer and hymns night. Like, what what do you think is the the, the underlying value behind doing things like that?
2: Yeah, I think uh- For me personally, I had a, there was a brilliant man. I, he might, I don't know if he's been on your show or not, uh, by the name of Kim Hammond. Uh, has he been on the show? You should get him on the show. He's awesome. Yeah. He's incredible. He's like just this like missionally minded dude, um, Australian and he's super funny. So, you know, right there you have an accent and humor, (laughs) you got good fodder. But, um, he, uh, really spoke into my life in my early twenties and said, Hey, like because I was trying to figure out faith and art and what does that look like, and he said, "You know, Jeremiah, God has created you with a certain skills and sets abilities to be missional amongst a certain group of people, mm. and these are your people. These artists are your people." So, um, I think I've always kind of taken my ministry role of saying, "Okay, I have a kind of nine to five task that I need to get done that are for the local congregation, yeah, but right. ultimately, um, ultimately, the bigger mission of my life." is to be a light in dark places and Mm -hmm. um, impact uh, the artistic community that God has created me for, um, for his glory.
0: That's really good, man. That other voice you're hearing, by the way, is Jeremiah Higgins. He is a multi-instrumentalist, a worship pastor, a leader, and a shepherd, and his new song Stop Stand releases tomorrow on all digital platforms. He's going to stick around for just one more segment as we continue to talk ministry, the local church, creativity, artistry, and really, whatever else flies into our brains. That's coming up mm-hmm. next here on The Common Good on AM 1160.
2: All the streets are
0: quiet and all the birds see. I never really liked feeling too busy. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simkins, along with Brian Fromm. We're so happy you are here. And uh, I'm absolutely thrilled to have for a second segment... One of the most talented dudes I know, Jeremiah Higgins, just to say it out loud, by the way, man, I am super grateful for you and your friendship and your leadership. You have helped me see and understand things in church world and artistic world in a way that uh, I've always just really appreciated you and your heart. So thanks for thanks for all you do, man, not only in my life personally, but for the church and the city of Chicago. I, uh, I love you like a brother, man. I appreciate you. I, I, I want to make sure that people know where they can get your music and find out more about you before we kind of go on here.
2: Well, first of all, Ian, that was just, I'm blushing over here. (laughs) Uh, And uh, the feelings are very, very mutual. Um, I don't mean to be sarcastic, but uh, sometimes it's a mode I can't get out of. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So you can, if anyone is interested, uh, I also, um, teach locally in the Chicagoland area, I teach private uh, music lessons, music theory and all that stuff. So any and all information about music uh regarding me can be found at jhigginsmusic.live. I'll say that again and slow down, jhigginsmusic.live. Okay. Um there is a well there used to be a page with performances which are uh, obviously nil these days given our current pandemic situation. Right. Um, and then there's uh ways to contact me um to if you 'd like to put a book a zoom lesson or just talk about music or book me for a private event um, and then also um as far as mu- music is concerned you can find me on all streaming platforms spotify iTunes um, title if anyone 's ever doing that anymore <laughs> um, you know that 's kind of that 's kind of the rundown facebook instagram Jeremiah higgins nice um I try to uh, be as uh spammy as possible with all my content so I'm <laughs>
1: perfect so I'm always fascinating whenever we have a musician on just to learn uh who do you listen to what is your favorite music right now
2: oh man well um wow that's a good question so i have kind of staples that i lean on um songwriters that i really appreciate or bands that i really love that are kind of like constants and then i have like current stuff that i'm into so the constants i'm a big steely dan fan i can oh. thank my dad for that um <laughs> one of the best concerts i've ever been to in my entire life was at the chicago theater walter becker was still alive um it was probably i don't know almost 10 years ago and it was mind-blowing even though those guys were much older than their prime they were still incredible um I don't know. Probably the, I could run down the typical hipster list of <laughs> songwriters like Sufjan Stevens and Gregory Allen Isakov and Amos Lee. Um, one of my favorite guitar players of all time is this guy by the name of Blake Mills. He's a music producer. Um, he's just a, an amazing musician. One of the best facilitators of the instrument I've ever heard. Gotten a chance to see live. Um yeah. And then kind of current ones, uh, my wife is kind of like a pop songstress. She loves pop music. Um, so I find myself surrounded by pop music. But there's this um, there's this woman by the name of Madison Cunningham out of L.A. She's a killer guitar player, killer singer, grew up in the church, was like a worship leader. She's a PK. Um, she's kind of a mix of like Fiona Apple meets Sarah Berry meets oh. – Nice. Awesome guitar playing. She's incredible. Um, and then there's another band in out of Canada named the Bros Landreth. Um, guy just has like a voice. He just has like golden coated vocal cords. <laughs> and he's an incredible guitarist, like slide, bluesy um, kind of stuff. So it's, it's kind of like a huge smattering across... I love the 1975. I love Taylor Swift's new record was killer. Um, <laughs> yeah, man, I'm just listening
0: to everything and everything, everything I can get my hand on. To. <laughs> I, I didn't hear any death metal in there, Jeremiah. Is that? <laughs> or is that uh, no,
2: no death metal and um, unf- yeah, no death metal I, and country <laughs> is not really. There's a few country artists that I like. Um, Chris Stapleton's a. I'm a big Chris Stapleton fan. Um, but I'm not like most country is pretty grating to my ears. <laughs>
0: I think that's probably how we became friends in the first place. To be honest, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> here is the here is the question I would love for you to answer because I know that for a lot of people, uh, church or otherwise, they maybe don't understand like the real value of creativity. It feels like in a lot of environments, particularly religious environments, um, artistry is strictly utilitarian. Like, oh, that will be useful for setting up the sermon, or we could like use this as a transition moment. So it's like creativity, but it's it's only transactional as long as it serves a purpose. Could you speak a little bit from your perspective as someone who's led worship at all sorts of different kinds of churches all across the country, different kinds of congregations, but you're also a songwriter and an artist. You also do a bunch of other creative things too that we might not even have time to talk about. What, what is like the real value? Why, why should churches in particular really give space for like true creative endeavors?
2: Yeah, I, I I think I touched on it very briefly in the earlier segment, but um, I really do believe that um, you know the 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 gospel, the good news of Jesus, um, the personality of the God that we serve. Um, we get little tidbits of information um, through the Bible, through the Holy Spirit, through relationship, through the church uh, as a community, um, and I think. Those are all well and good, um, but in that community are people with creative voices that um, tend to be uh, a little bit more prophetic, and they might even be like the dissenting voice a lot of times hmm. in a local congregation, um, and they don't even know it. They don't even know that uh, that they've been created that way in order to, to push people towards truth um, because... Artists are scary people.
0: Hmm. Hmm.
2: Artists are messy. Artists are people who don't, from the outside, uh, don't seem like they've got it together. Um, And so culturally, like we don't really value artists except for their output. Hmm. We only value their output. So that's not just the church thing that you're talking about transactionally. Uh, I'm going to use a really, this is a, a really polarizing example, but look at Kanye West. He's a perfect example of someone who um, the only value that culturally that we see with Kanye West. And this is, I I say this knowing that it's not correct um, or right is the output that he puts out Hmm. and all the rest of the stuff that comes along with him. We just kind of put him to the side and say, Oh, that's Kanye. Oh, that's because he struggles with mental health and blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, we still only see Kanye West as one thing and someone who creates great art instead of a whole person. And what Kanye has done through his art is exposed things that are systemic issues and expose things that are cultural issues um, that we need to be listening to. Um, and we can become better. And I think all artists have that voice. And I think artists specifically need to have that voice in the church. That's good, man.
1: Jeremiah, just with like the minute or so we have left, uh, we want to make sure people can remember how to get to your music, get your uh, the new song that's coming out. Why don't you again share where people can find you?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm available on all streaming platforms. Uh, if you just go to your Spotify or, or Apple Music, um, Jeremiah Higgins is my full name. Uh, you can also find me Facebook and Instagram at, those, at that same handle. Um, and then my website is jhigginsmusic.live. Um, you can contact me if you'd like to book me or um, if you'd like to have me come lead worship at your church or talk about cre- creativity to your staff or any and all those things. I'm, I'm up for it.
0: I love that, man. I, I realize we only have like 20 seconds left or so, but what word of encouragement would you give to someone right now who has maybe never actually taken a, a dive into the creativity, the work that they want to do? They're thinking, oh, I have this burning desire to do creative work, but I haven't actually taken the plunge. What, what word would you give to that person?
2: Yeah, I, I would say um, turn off the inner editor hmm. and, and dive in. Oh. You'll, never, you'll never get in the pool if you don't dive in. Um, That's good, man. Sticking the toe isn't good enough. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> Spoken like a true Enneagram 4. I appreciate I, that I, I very, <laughs> very, very much, man. Again, that is Jeremiah Higgins, songwriter, worship pastor, all-around great dude. His new song comes out tomorrow. Stop, stand available on all digital platforms. I cannot encourage you enough. To go and get it. Jeremiah, thank you so much for joining us today, Beth. Hey, it was awesome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Dude, a pleasure as always, man. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good for the final time, both today and this week, which sounds more dramatic than I wanted it to be. And uh, I think I think this qualifies. Scott Saul's friend of the show. He's a uh, he's a blogger, but also probably first a a pastor and a leader in Tennessee. And he's got a way of of often sort of maybe raising hairs on both sides of the coin. And I think a really Jesus like way. And uh, this title might just do it for you listening. He says conservative biblical theology
1: begets liberal loving. You want to get us into this, Brian? I do. This week, he says, I'm feeling especially proud of the church that I get to serve as pastor. The people of Christ Presbyterian Church have a history of being exceptionally generous with their lives, being conservative in their theology, believing every word of scripture to be right and true. Our people have become liberal in their loving being sojourners on the narrow path. Our people have developed a broad embrace, believing Jesus to be the great physician and bearer of burdens. Our people have become merciful healers and activists. Over 40% of every dollar given to our church is sent out to missional partners in Nashville and across the globe with special attention to the poor, the marginalized, and oppressed in our city. Uh, He gives an example about a flood that happened in Nashville and how they stepped up. Uh, He goes on to say later, as I look back on almost nine years of serving at Christ Presbyterian, I'm especially proud of the beyond Nashville focus of our people, especially in relation to the worst humanitarian crisis the world has known since World War II and Hitler's Nazi Germany. For several years now, men, women, and children have been fleeing their native land of Syria in fear of their lives. Roughly 16 million people seek refuge from vicious, life-threatening, religious, and socio-political persecution. Sadly, the Syrian crisis has been under the radar here in the West until terrorists started sending out videos of beheadings on beaches. Then a photo of a little boy named Elon lying murdered on the beach went viral. Uh, He talks about how when that picture came, people started just jumping onto that story. But he says, I hope that you'll forgive me with the snarky tone of the last paragraph where people jumped on after they saw the picture. But I also hope you'll find agreement with the irony represented. How did we return so quickly to thinking first about these things when there are 16 million souls seeking refuge and a cup of cold water in Jesus name? And now in 2020, as we enter another election cycle amid social unrest, as we engage important conversations about what healing and repair might look like for black and brown lives, And as the whole world navigates a global pandemic, might we also remember three, these millions of suffering Middle Eastern souls as well, for they too remain our neighbors. They remain among those whom Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let me pause there. He's going to go into more of what they've been doing. Uh, This idea, Ian, of the, the more conservative our theology, the more Christ focused we are, I think he would say. The more liberal we love, and the wider our embrace. Do you think A that's true, and B would most churches or people agree with that?
0: <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I mean, obviously he's he's wanting to do something by using the word cons- conservative and liber- right. liberal there, um, but I I think he makes a great point. He's he's said this in other ways in previous posts, but I don't I don't know that I've seen him dedicate an entire blog to that notion. That man, the more seriously you take Jesus. Like for example, wow, uh, what's like a good example of a a highly progressive read on Jesus, right? Like there maybe was there was no actual physical Jesus, or he didn't. Act, there was no bodily resurrection. That tends right. to be in on the extremely progressive kind of interpretations. Not all progressive interpretations, um, but you know, if that's the case, if that's your theological conviction, then how he lived or what kind of life he called us to maybe doesn't bear as much intensity. But a conservative reading of how Jesus actually not only taught people to live, but how he actually treated people himself. Right. If if we were to take that, again, I don't want to overuse the word seriously, but, but maybe that's the best word to use. I think, I think we have to do a lot of gymnastics to both uh, give allegiance to someone like Jesus and excuse really unloving behavior. And again, this is happening right and left, progressive and conservative. I'm not pointing – any figures in any particular camp um but it, it does always strike me as interesting though the ways that we sometimes justify yeah. just our lack of kindness yeah. or or empathy or love and and where that will often go is like well how we define love is what we're all disagreeing about and the bible talks about i totally understand all of those arguments and i i think there are smart people on you know multiple sides of many coins but uh i think To really answer your question, I think Scott Sauls is making a great point here.
1: Yep. He goes on later to say, under the title of the activist love of Jesus for a whole world that includes us, he says, when I read about the sheep and the goats, sometimes I feel more like a goat and a poser than I do a sheep and a true believer. Having been a Christian for 30 years and an ordained minister for 25, I'm not yet what I should be. While more than half the world is sick and dying from starvation, I overeat on a regular basis. While over half the world barely survives on less than $2.50 per day. Relative to the rest of the world, I have lived in luxury every single day of my life. While more than 16 million souls battle the elements and long for a city of refuge, I live in an affluent, progressive, forward-moving, it city in a neighborhood that is safe from the danger, with a pool, hiking trail, two cars in every garage, air conditioning and heat, and a grill on every patio. When guilt and a sense of not doing nearly enough kick in, I am then reminded so graciously that it is not merely poor refugees who need rescue and shelter given to them, uh, by affluent saviors. It is also affluent refugees, ones like me who need the rescue and shelter provided by the refugee savior who was poor. And that's a great line right there. This because you can just get guilty, right? About oh, 250 a day. You can just get guilty I, instead of him saying, let the guilt just cause you to be more gracious and more charitable, which is good. He also says, no, I use it as a chance to be reminded that I'm needing a savior. I'm a refugee. I need a savior. Not that I'm above the need of salvation. Yeah,
0: that's well said, man. I'm I'm, uh, I'm looking through this blog, wanting to read like 10 so more good. parts. Yeah. I just don't have, I mean, he, uh, he quotes from Ian Cron, who writes, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see my brother, I see my brother. Forgiveness is the garment of our courage, the power to make the peace we long to know. Open up our eyes to see the wounds that bind all of humankind. May our shuttered hearts greet the dawn of life with charity and love. I think that's such a good such a good this could honestly be like three or four blogs oh, no out. I feel like he always packs so much into it. but what yeah, what would you say is sort of the
1: the general takeaway from from his posture here? so I think one, yes, be thankful and be be honest about what's going on around the world and how we have it in relation to people, like just understand uh, the bigger world around us. Uh, but to uh, don't allow that to give you arrogance or even just primarily guilt, allow that to go. No, but I'm equally in need of a savior, whether that, that poor person in Syria that he was describing or whatever else, I'm not above than my need of salvation. I, I am Uh, grateful for a savior. And now with my affluence world, you know, compared to the world, I'm going to go use it to serve others, love others, love my neighbors as Jesus taught me to. That's a
0: good challenge, man. Again, I know I say this for most articles. Yeah, I would recommend get yourself a cup of coffee and and read the whole thing because it it packs a punch. And I do guess that maybe there'll be people that uh, disagree with this point or that point. But as always, We would really love to know what you think. We think it's better when we actually create space to dialogue, to disagree, to push back, but to do it all in love. That's kind of been our heartbeat and hope for this show from the very beginning. So this, like everything, is on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show, and we would love, love, love to hear from you and are super grateful for all of you who have been weighing in, who have been subscribing, who have been sharing, all of that not only helps the show, but it does mean a lot to us, and we really, really are grateful for all of you. Thanks for being with us all this week. We hope you have a great Labor Day on Monday and we'll be back with new content on Tuesday. I'm Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you have been listening to the common good on AM eleven sixty. Hope you're like.